At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world of fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. begin this morning, uh, begin our time together by asking you to take a journey with me. All right? You guys ready for that? Okay. Here's where we are going. We are going to hop in our Wayback Time Machine and we are going to go to the 1990s, the mid-1990s actually. I was in my 20s, a few pounds lighter. And that's when, when you would get in the car, you'd go in your house and you'd listen to the radio, you'd turn on the radio and there would be a song that was consistently playing, that was asking a very powerful question about God. What if God was one of us? You see, the lyrics of this catchy chorus go like this. It asks this question, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. Now that song, One of Us, was of course controversial. Some of you may have even been uncomfortable with me reading that line. It was written by a man with Jewish heritage, performed by an unbeliever, and yet the song was incredibly popular in that time period. When I just read that chorus, I bet you could hear that tune rattling around in your head. You see, it was popular because it posed a question that many people wonder about. Many people are curious, what would it look like? For God to be among us. What would that be like? Well, I want you to know a couple thousand years before one of us became popular, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, he posed that question. Actually, he went beyond posing the question. He actually proclaimed that there would, in fact, be a time where God would be among his creation. Listen to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the name Emmanuel actually means God with us. Now fast forward to the New Testament, then in Matthew's gospel, Isaiah's prophecy is actually ascribed to the announcement of Jesus' birth. So it's not just a prophecy, Matthew says, I'm going to put this in real time. Here's what Matthew says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet, by Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, it was the right conviction that in Jesus, God was with us. And God was with us because he became one of us. So if you're keeping score, let me break it down for you. There was a human. That human was God and his name was Jesus. But today... We begin our Christmas sermon series titled Emmanuel, God with us, as we are going to spend the entire Advent season reading different portions of God's word that are going to highlight the significance of Jesus entering our world, why it matters, why it is so very significant in the history of humanity. And make no mistake, Jesus coming to earth as a baby, known by theologians as the incarnation, changed everything. It changed absolutely everything. Now today, John's gospel is going to be our guide as we read about the significance of Emmanuel, the significance of God with us. But before we grab our Bibles and read together, let's pray. Gracious God, in this moment we quiet our hearts and acknowledge our need and our desire to know more of you. God, we are a people who desire more than shiny objects under the tree and fancy lights on our stage or in our home or in our neighborhoods. God, we are a people who long to know you and to know you deeply. God, that's why we're here today. That's why we've gotten up on a Sunday morning and driven to this building to be with the people of God to to bring you praise, to know you more, to experience more of you. So God, as we turn to your word now, would you help us to see the significance of what's on its pages? And in order to do that, God, we need eyes to see the truth. We need ears to hear this truth, Lord. And then genuine, humble hearts before you that you might mold us and shape us through this truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to begin by looking at a few passages in the first chapter of John's gospel. Now, as you're grabbing your Bible and going there, I do want to just take this kind of quick aside and uh, just acknowledge something. This is a text that is familiar to many of us. If you've been in church any length of time, you are familiar with the portion of Scripture that we are about to read. But I want to challenge you, I want to ask you to set aside your preconceptions, if at all possible. I want to ask you to push away anything that might cause you not to hear what you are about to hear from God's Word. Can we do that? I'm going to try that again. Can we do that this morning? All right. Let's grab our Bibles then. And we're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. 
You're going to find that on page 886 in your Bibles uh, as we read along from our ESV translation. Again, John chapter 1, we're going to pick it up at verse 14. Here's what John writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's where we're going to stop. White Lake family, it is not an exaggeration to say that what we, jet, what we just read together is the most significant, the most culture-shaping, the most eternally relevant words in all of Scripture. Right there. Significant, culture-shaming, eternally relevant because and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That changes everything, doesn't it? That reality changes absolutely everything. You see, when we consider how John's gospel begins, the word entering our world is the ultimate reality. It does not get any bigger. It does not get any more epic than that. Listen to the way John begins his gospel account in chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and with him was not anything made that was made. The creator has entered the creation. I'm going to say that one more time because it is so significant. The creator has entered the creation. That's what we call the incarnation. That is a Latin term that means in the flesh. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, all of human history changes. Changes all of it. Because glory entered the world. And it did so through a baby. A needy, crying baby. Now to wrap our minds around the significance of this glorious appearing, I want us to consider the question posed by Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs is a Puritan theologian from the 1600s, and he poses this question. He says, for God to make man a glorious creature of the dust of the earth, it was a great matter, very significant. But what is this in comparison for God to be made Man. There is no comparison. And this is precisely why you and I are going to spend this morning and actually the whole of the Advent season considering the significance of the word entering our world. 
So let's jump back into the text. We're going to look a little more deeply at John's gospel, looking at verses 14 and 15. And the word became flesh. That's what John says. And it dwelt, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then you sort of get this addendum. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, of whom I told you, he who comes after me actually ranks before me. Because he was before me. Church, there's so much for us to consider in that little portion of God's word, but I want us to focus on three primary themes, three central themes. The first one is that in Jesus, God becomes fully human. In Christ, God becomes fully human. You see, the term John uses there, became flesh, is actually incredibly important. And here's why. Because if you look at the whole of Scripture, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you would hear God described as spirit. John says that's changed in the person of Jesus. The reality of God as spirit changes because he is now in the flesh. Now, the second thing, in Jesus, God actually dwells with humanity. He dwelt among us, the text says. Now, this is a wholesale change from what we read about again in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you could only connect with God in the context of the tabernacle. Here, John tells us Jesus dwells among us. He's here. He's with us. And finally, in Jesus, the glory of Almighty God is revealed. You see, Jesus is the ultimate picture of God's glory, expressed in both grace and truth. It's expressed in grace and truth. And when we see and experience these together, it is truly magnificent. Make no mistake about that. But here's a reality. Far too often in God's church, we experience one without the other. We experience grace without truth or truth without grace. Here's what I mean. There's grace without truth, and this is what it will look like. You'll receive grace, but it'll be sloppy. It's this kind of do whatever you want and we'll support you kind of message. Struggling with sin, it's fine, no big deal. Not engaging in the word, not... Spending time in the spiritual disciplines, you're good. Doesn't matter. As your pastor, let me tell you, that's not helpful. That is not helpful. While grace without truth might be comforting in the moment, it is truly not what any one of us actually needs. We need grace. To be sure. But we also need people around us who will support us graciously by speaking the truth. Sometimes that means challenging a friend, challenging a brother or sister in Christ about the way that we're currently living. Sometimes that means we speak the truth about how we spend our money. Sometimes that means we need to come alongside someone and speak truth into their life about how they invest their time. 
Sometimes that means we need to speak truth into the life of someone about how they speak and interact and treat their spouse. Other times that could cause us to speak truth about how we model and practice the gospel with our kids in our home. Here's what it looks like. Hey, brother, I'm, I'm really sorry about all the tough things that you've been going through. I know that it is really, really hard. But I just want to encourage you. As my brother or my sister in Christ, I want to call you to something more. I want to challenge you to invest more time in your marriage, more time in your kids. That's what it looks like to speak and model truth from a heart of grace and love. But there's also another side to this, isn't there? We've talked about what it looks like to have grace without truth, but there's also an emphasis sometimes in the church on all truth and no grace. That's where law reigns. That's where legalism enters the experience. That's where religious rules and regulations take precedent over the grace that believers have in Christ. This is why the words of the reformer Martin Luther are so helpful. Here's how he describes it. He says, the law says, do this, but it's never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. You might say, well, how is that already done? It is done in the grace and the truth that entered our world in the person of Jesus. It's in him. And this is why our call today as believers, you and I must behold the person of Jesus. God's people are to behold the person of Christ. Now some of you might say, well, pastor, you know what? That sounds really great. Holiday season and all, I have no idea what the word behold means. I get the charge. I hear you challenging me to behold. I don't know what it means. Well, the good news is it's actually pretty easy. You see, the biblical term for behold actually means to look at, to observe, to spend time observing and looking at. So one practical way that you and I can actually behold is to observe Jesus' life. Where do we do that? We do that by reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all tell the story of Jesus' life. So grab your Bible and start in the first chapter of Matthew. That's where you'll learn about Jesus' heritage. Skip over to Mark's gospel. It's a very concise account of Jesus' life. Dive into Luke's gospel and you'll read about his birth and Jesus' childhood. And then you get to John, and John's gospel will show you that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is how we as God's people can behold, we can observe, we can look upon Jesus in the Word. Now, let's return to the text. 
John chapter 1, picking it up at verse 16. It says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, he has made him known. You see, in the fullness of Jesus, believers have received something of of incredible importance. That's that phrase there that we might not hear often, grace upon grace. Here's why it's significant. Because of the context. Because of the context. You see, scholars believe grace upon grace means the grace that God's people have now received in Jesus improves upon the grace that they had received in the Old Covenant. So all the covenants that are highlighted in the Old Testament, they're pointing their way to the new covenant we have in Christ. And that's why the next sentence in the text is so important to us. Listen to it. For the law, Old Testament covenant, was given through Moses. Grace and truth, well, they come through Jesus Christ. See, through Jesus, there's a new covenant. And it is a covenant marked by grace and truth. Now, practically speaking, this means that through faith in Jesus, believers are no longer under the old covenant. Jesus fulfills all of the requirements that, that, that is needed. Jesus does that. Now, be careful. He doesn't replace them. He fulfills them. He does that, and that is why we must behold the work of Jesus. We are to behold the person of Jesus, and here we are called to behold the work of Jesus. And so we must observe, we must look upon what Jesus did in leaving the perfect unity that he experienced with the Father and with the Spirit. And he entered our world as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament points to. It's found in Jesus. Jesus did that. And when he did, he brings grace and truth. So we behold the work of Jesus, when we come to him and repent of our sin and believe in him. We behold the work of Jesus when we humble ourselves and place our trust squarely upon the only one who could pay the penalty that our sin deserves. And we behold the work of Jesus when we stop striving to be good enough when we lay that down and humbly trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus upon the cross for our salvation. You know, the fact is, many of you may have been in church a thousand times. Many of you may come and you thought, oh boy, here we go. I actually have to hear the story of Jesus coming to earth again as a child. I've heard it, I'm tired of it. But maybe, maybe there's someone here today who would say, you know what? I'm hearing this for the first time. 
I'm actually hearing this. I'm internalizing it. I'm understanding the significance of the incarnation for me. Let me encourage you in the most pastoral way that I can. This is your invitation to see and understand and experience in a personal way the glory of Jesus. You know, I was in my freshman year of college when God opened my eyes to behold the work of Christ. I'd grown up in the church. Many times I had heard the story of the baby in a manger. But the fact is it didn't have a lot of significance. It didn't have any bearing on my day-to-day life until... Until God used the powerful words of some friends to stir an awakening in me. And that's when I came to God. I repented of my sin. I believed in the person and the work of Jesus on the cross in my place for my salvation. That's my story. What's yours? Perhaps today is your day. Perhaps the Spirit is stirring in your heart right now as you consider afresh the incarnation of Jesus. Perhaps this grace and truth that is found only in him is overwhelming you in this moment. I hope so. I hope so. You see, in many ways, this is the invitation of Christmas. Whatever family struggle you might be dealing with, whatever personal challenge you have experienced in the past year, whatever personal failure you have endured, John's gospel invites you and me to come and to see. It says, come and see the baby born in a manger. Come and see the Christ child. Come and see the glory of God. Consider once again John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, he has made him known. For it is only when we see Jesus, only when we see Jesus the person and his sacrificial work upon the cross can you and I truly see the glory of our God. So White Lake family, as we begin this Advent season, may we look upon him with fresh eyes. May we observe him with a sense of of renewed amazement. And may we truly behold Jesus, the one who entered our world with grace and truth. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.